0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Generally speaking, when one hears of an offer that's too good not to take, that's guaranteed to make you money, that's flawless and foolproof and that you just can't afford to turn down, one assumes it's one of those business opportunities that seem always to occur to Nigerian princes with two million pounds to put in your bank account. The equivalent for defined contribution schemes would appear to be illiquids, which, at least according to a new report from the Pensions Policy Institute, can grant DC access to higher returns with no additional risk. There's usually, though, a caveat or a drawback somewhere, but we'll begin by asking whether and what that drawback might be. Next up, and despite warnings from the industry that leaping straight from analogue to full-fat digital is too great an ask, the government last week reaffirmed the bold and ambitious target – of launching pensions dashboards with both find and view functionality. The cynic might suggest that the corollary of ambition is delays, but we'll ask whether schemes can possibly have everything ready by the target onboarding dates. And finally, though it might be argued that the most pressing problem faced by the young and the low paid is that they are not sufficiently employable, there are calls of increasing volume to reduce the age and earnings threshold uh, for automatic enrolment. The government has already committed itself to expanding auto enrolment but the latest request from Now Pensions is for ministers to set a proper timeline for achieving it so we will ask whether they will and whether it is sensible. I'm Benjamin Mercer senior reporter of pensions experts and I'm joined today by John Shepherd, pensions partner at Linklaters and by Samantha Gould head of PR and campaigns at Now Pensions. Thank you both very much for joining me. We will kick off with uh, illiquids in that case. So less that little summary of the PPI report give the impression that they are being sold as something of a Ponzi scheme. They're not. Uh, The prospectus is a little bit more nuanced than that. They say that although although alternative assets do indeed carry the potential for higher returns at no extra risk, there are a number of well-known barriers to entry to DC schemes uh, which they must overcome, not least costs and fees and liquidity needs for daily dealing. Uh, it presents a range of policy options, such as new data approaches that could add bespoke elements to default funds, and so bring members more of the benefits of the liquids and other alternatives. But we've been talking about the problems for about as long as we've been talking about the idea. So. John, I think I'll kick off with you on this if that's all right. Obviously, there are a number of well-known hurdles to bringing DC into a liquid at to all. daily dealing requirements, for example. So what extent is the now, uh, sorry, is the um, PPI's sort of idea achievable without a profound or significant, at least, change in the law around liquidity requirements, daily dealing and other restrictions on DC? I
1: don't think it's so much a change in the law around daily dealing requirements and liquidity. It's more a case I think of managing member expectations members these days do expect to be able to switch in and out of funds on a daily basis to be able to transfer at short notice and just have that expectation and if there's going to be a part of their pot, and if that indeed if that means the whole pot can't be moved on say a 30-day notice period then that needs to be very clearly explained to them and probably repeated on a regular basis because you can certainly see that if a member can come back to you at a later point and say well, actually I didn't know this, I've lost out because now I can make the investment I wanted to because I'm stuck in this fund for 30 days. It'll be the trustees that they're claiming any sort of investment loss from.
0: Sure thing. Sam, if I come to you as well, obviously, one of the arguments is that you can use new data techniques, for instance, to add almost bespoke elements to default funds, which sounds counterintuitive, but I'm sure there is a way of making that work. How feasible is that? So I mean, they talk about using data to especially expanding the range of data from members that they use to target their investment opportunities more specifically to individual members. Is that feasible for most default funds, do you think? I mean, is is that workable? Or was it a nice idea?
2: I think it's great that consumers are now demanding more from providers, and at now pensions we offer a single default fund at the moment, um, and obviously we have to balance the kind of delivering great returns for our members whilst also protecting them against market volatility. But I do think there's generally a rise in people, especially with app-based, you know, investments, where people are kind of moving money around more. And I do think pensions is an industry that probably needs to catch up with probably, you know, the fintechs and the banks of the world. But I also think there is, you know, a requirement for, you know, the trustees and I guess the guardians of people's pots and savings to kind of balance and kind of do the legwork for them. So, for example, we've just done a, last year we did a complete investment review of our uh, fund, and we've pledged to put 50% into uh, sustainable bonds and equities. So again, we are trying to meet the UN PRI's sustainability goals and kind of trying to, I guess, look after the members' pots and grow them whilst safeguarding it against market volatility. But I think as technology does you know, progress, I do think members are going to have a lot more control over, you know, what they can do with their funds. And, you know, there might be, as you said, add-ons to the default that people can start taking control over.
0: Sure thing. And and John, if I come back to you on this again, so obviously one of the caveats that's included in, in the PPI report is that, that obviously there was a great focus on costs and fees and charges, and these can quite often be higher in the case of illiquids and other alternative assets. Is there any reason that, there is such a strong focus. I know, I know people have complained about the strong focus on, on costs and uh, fees in particular, when actually some have argued they should be taking a slightly more holistic view of this. Is there any uh, legal reason why this focus has arisen? I mean, is it a fiduciary responsibility to prioritise concerns of costs over other considerations? Or is it something that's sort of just become a mindset that, that could easily be changed without any additional prompting?
1: Well, there are some legal restrictions relating to costs. So there's the costs cap for default funds and the specific requirement for trustees to assess value for money for members. But there is obviously flexibility within that to include higher fees for part of your funds if that's what you think is in the best interests of members. But I think particularly outside of master trusts, I think there is a particular focus from trustees on headline cost rates. And I think it's just It's almost a psychological thing. It's much harder for trustees to say to themselves that actually paying a higher fee is better value for members because they have to be able to justify it. It'll be much easier for a member to come back and say, well, I've been paying a higher fee and I haven't really had that benefit. And that's your fault, trustee. So I think there's almost a psychological barrier to trustees um, agreeing to sign up to higher fees. They almost have to be convinced of that benefit to a higher degree and on a lower fee capped fund.
0: Fair enough. So we we can try and re-educate trustees. That might might prompt some of them to uh, to change their mindset. We'll move on from uh, illiquids at this point, I think, and go to dashboards in that case. So if you thought it took a long time for winter to arrive in Game of Thrones, but you still enjoyed that series, pensions is probably the industry that you should be focusing on because there's equivalently lengthy dramas here. Uh, The government last week reaffirmed its ambitious commitment to find and view functionality on pensions dashboards which comes despite industry criticism pointing to the sheer volume of work required to make this happen. Uh, Larger schemes with more than 1,000 members are supposed to be onboarded between April 2023 and September 2024. Medium schemes then will join between October 2024 and October 2025. Small and micro schemes do not have a specific date yet, though the consultation suggests it's likely to be from 2026. But the government has acknowledged that the enormity of the data challenges that lie ahead might initially result in incomplete dashboards, Though the most interesting reveal, I think, in this saga was the range of caveats applied to public sector schemes, which, of course, are already struggling, struggling under the burden of the McLeod remedy, and the government appeared to trail the prospect of further delays where they are concerned. Sam, I'll begin with you on this one, if that's all right. It is a significant data challenge, isn't it? Trying to have find and view functionality on the pensions dashboard from launch. I think that's been the industry criticism. The government's moved on irrespective, or regardless of that, criticism. Was that a sensible thing to do, or would it have been more sensible to trial maybe more limited dashboards and work your way up to view as well as find?
2: I think obviously the, the size and scale of trying to kind of get everybody's pension savings onto a single platform is always going to be a challenge. But I think it's a good thing to do. I think we need the dashboard. I think, you know, allowing a place for people to see all those individual pots. So we did some research last year with the PPI which showed, you know, the gravity of the small pot problem. And I think the latest estimates that people have around 11 jobs now throughout their career, and, you know, if you equate that to 11 pots um, and obviously there's charges and fees on top of each of those, I do think it's definitely in in the members' best outcomes for us to provide a, a place where people can start seeing all of their pension savings in one place. And, yeah, I think it serves the best purpose For people to, you know, if we look at targets and what they want for their retirement lifestyle, again, allowing people to see visually where they are and how far they are away to that kind of dream retirement will help give savers a better understanding of what they need to be putting away and might also increase engagement in terms of people identify a problem earlier on that they might not have enough, then at least they've got time to rectify it and start saving a lot more. So, yes, it's going to be hard, but I think we absolutely persevere and try our best to deliver it.
0: Sure thing. And um, John, obviously, there is the risk, and I think the government acknowledged the risk that try, try our best that we might. Delivery might not be perfect at the outset. I think it did allow for potentially partial information being disclosed on. The dashboard at the off but did lay out some some things that schemes could do to mitigate any damage that that might do reputationally what are, I mean is there a significant punishment for any kind of non-compliance which is which is mandatory or is this at the discretion of say the regulators if a scheme is simply unable to meet this challenge by the deadline that's been set for them
1: there is some potential for the regulator to issue fines but helpfully they are discretionary fines. They are sort of in line with the level of fines that you might see for some other sort of more minor pensions legislation breaches, so £5,000 for an individual trustee, £50,000 for a corporate trustee. But I think it's the, it's an area, particularly given the difficulties acknowledged in getting it off the ground to start with, where the regulator's not going to be handing out fines immediately. There's also a facility for the, the regulator to issue improvement notices. And I would have thought that if informal conversations with uh, particular sets of trustees don't do the job to improve matters, then it will, that's where it will start with a formal improvement notice. And only, I think, in pretty extreme cases, I think, where trustees basically just aren't trying to do it and um, where the regulator end up issuing a fine.
0: And obviously, we discussed the, you know, the great potentials of, of the dashboard if it's achieved well and what it can accomplish. I suppose that this, the related but distinct question is, do you think it actually will accomplish these things? And I'll go to Sam with two on this one. Obviously, intentions are one thing. Delivery is, is another thing. If you were to get a crystal ball out, how likely do you think it would be that everything will happen on time and perfectly well?
2: Hmm, that's a tough question. Uh, I wouldn't want to comment on more delays of the dashboard. I do think that it will happen. I think that is just the way of the world in terms of, you know, pensions needs to be a bit more in the fintech space like our banks and other colleagues. And again, I think it's needed to help increase engagement with people and kind of understanding more about again the power of their pensions. So, quite often you speak to people and they might have a pension they might not know they have a pension they have envelopes stuffed in drawers which is different you know annual statements that is pretty much the relationship that they have with their pension is a letter once a year so again I think the more that we can digitize the process and make it a bit more engaging I think once people start seeing the pots building and start seeing all the different pots that they might have with an option to consolidate of course Uh, I think people start realising the power that they have in terms of they're not starting from a zero base. So I think there might be some people saving today that probably have no idea how much their pensions are obviously worth. So again, I think it just helps to give a consolidated view of their finances. And again, it improves kind of financial wellness and well-being once you understand where all of your different finances are sitting. And again, does it get you to where you want to be in terms of your what you envision vision to be your kind of later life years
0: and retirement. Sure thing. And John, just finally on, the, on this one, if I may, it's slightly a re- related question. Obviously, we mentioned in the introduction that there is the prospect of delays for public sector schemes. I think at the moment their their onboarding date is twenty end of twenty twenty four but the government said that it may need to consider what other mitigations might be needed to ensure the successful staging of public sector schemes. How much leeway is it reasonable to give public sector schemes? Obviously, given that you've got McLeod and you've got GMPs and you've got other significant data issues anyway, does dashboards work without public sector schemes, given how many people they employ, and is it therefore feasible to to continue without them?
1: I think it is. I mean, it does feel a bit like the government making an exception for itself, Uh, not recognising the fact that all of the private sector schemes are trying to do GMP equalisation and probably will be for at least the next couple of years. There are only a number of data projects that most private DB schemes will have ongoing and trying to gather all that data to be able to comply with their obligations relating to the dashboard will be a huge challenge. And it's the government saying, well, that's your problem. We're just going to carve ourselves out of it. So it does feel a little bit unfair in that sense. But there are, as you say, huge numbers of people in a public sector pension scheme or who have had a period in a public sector pension scheme. And so until that issue is resolved, that's clearly going to be a big gap in the coverage of the dashboard. I don't think it means we should delay getting off the ground for everyone else. But I think it is it is slightly disappointing.
0: Fair enough. Well, in that case, we'll move on to our final topic of the day. Uh, now, pensions is just the latest to call on the government to stick to its own policy of lowering the age and earnings threshold for auto-enrollment, which it said would increase pension wealth and contributions significantly across a large number of groups. It also called for a firm timeline, which is something Pensions Minister Garman has not so far given us. Uh, most recently, at a parliamentary debate on January 26th, where he declined to do so again. And current LCP partner, former pensions minister, Steve Webb, said that this was disappointing. Sam, I think you're the logical person to come to first on this, given it's now a pensions announcement. Take us through. Obviously, this, this has been it was the auto-envolume in 2017 when I think it was decided, wasn't it? And it's been called for by a number of different parties for a long time. What What are the merits then, of lowering the, the thresholds of age and earnings?
2: Yeah, so this is something that was part of the 2017 Automatic Enrolment Review, and we were given a date back then of mid-2020s, so it's something that's already been committed to, and we just want to continue putting, I guess, pressure on kind of getting some key dates and timelines in. So at the moment, how Automatic Enrolment works is that you have to be earning over the £10,000 earnings trigger and be aged 22 and over, and then you're automatically enrolled problem is is that there are multiple people now who or millions of people who work multiple jobs part-time jobs uh, 75% of part-time workers are women and they then don't earn that 10,000 pound threshold and therefore they are excluded from automatic enrolment so our research that we launched in December 21 shows that there are now almost 3 million people who are locked out of automatic enrolment through that not earning that 10,000 pound And the majority of those 2.2 million are women. And again, it's because they tend to have part-time jobs and multiple jobs. So we are wanting the government to commit to a date. I know uh, Richard Holden, MP, he has a private members bill that was read on the 25th of January. And he has a second reading in later this month, February. And again, he is calling on the removal of the £10,000 and dropping the age from 22 to age 18. Um, we want it because if we managed to achieve that, we'd get obviously 3 million people saving and it would be over a billion pounds of pension contributions a year. And obviously that could be the difference between people having a moderate lifestyle or an adequate lifestyle in their later years. So we are hugely pushing uh, as much as we can on that because it it had been agreed back in 2017 we just want a date and again I think logically you couldn't just go from £10,000 to zero it would have to be gradually phased in I think uh, it's obviously topical at the moment you know cost of living increases and people are probably not going to have pensions top of the list so again I think it's important that you know we need to have a phased approach to make it realistic for people.
0: Sure thing. And um, John, how important is it that, that for example, if were this to, to come to fruition, that, that it would come hand in hand with, say, solutions to, to the small parts problem and increased uh, availability of consolidation? Because obviously, if you're expanding auto to to people with multiple jobs and therefore presumably multiple pension parts, is, that not, is there not a risk that that increases the, the proliferation of small parts?
1: It certainly is. I mean, I think a solution to the small parts problem would certainly help. But equally, if we do have the dashboard coming online across a similar period, whilst not you know, a complete silver bullet to the small pots problem, it will help people be able to better manage those issues. And hopefully, as some of the additional functionality of dashboards that, um, that may develop, will, there will be a simple process for members to be able to um, consolidate those pots using the dashboard as a, as a good starting point.
0: Sam, obviously, you, you mentioned cost of living concerns before, which I suppose yeah will be pertinent to people on the lower income threshold anyway. One of the other concerns that I'm just comes to mind is, especially if you're lowering, say, the age threshold, and one of the problems that young people have is if finding employment to begin with. Is there not a risk that it disincentivises employment amongst precisely the groups that it's designed to help if it makes it more expensive to employ them because they are being auto-enrolled and therefore the employers must pay contributions, pension contributions but they didn't before? Is that a fair risk or is that maybe an overstated one?
2: I don't think it would reduce the, I guess, attractiveness of employing someone between, between the ages of 18 and 22. I think it has been announced as part of the 2017 review. So we're talking five years ago. So I think, to be fair, we need to give employers as much notice as possible. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're calling on deadline or a timeline or some sort of plan, just so that employers, well, obviously they'll be impacted as well as the members themselves. So we do need a timeline just so that employers can obviously make arrangements and ensure that everybody's well-equipped to start... You know, enrolling people from a lot younger age, but again, you know, the magic of compound interest. If you get somebody at 18 saving over a 50-year career, you know, retirement age is going up to 68. It could make world of difference to people over a 50-year career of saving compared to somebody now who, especially women who, you know, might start off full time and then drop off to have children. And we call it like the motherhood penalty where, you know, you might have 16 years out of full time work and 16 years of potentially lost contributions, which is obviously what leads to things like the gender pensions gap. So I think the more that we can do to enroll everybody and make it a lot fairer would mean that we get greater quality when it comes to retirement outcomes.
0: And just just quickly to close on this topic, do do you have a preferred date as to when you would like to see this set for?
2: So they said mid-2020s, so 1st of Jan 2025 would be great uh, if they're actually going to, you know, commit to the mid-2020s. But no, I do think we need obviously realistic timescales and I do think that the reduction of the £10,000 can't go straight to zero. We'd obviously need a phased introduction. So yes, I think the more that we can... Raise this as an issue industry wide. We obviously have support from lots of providers. We've got the private members' bill via Richard Holden. I just think the more pressure that we can put on the government, the better.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think that brings us to the close of the principal portion of the programme. We go, of course, to our always a pensions angle. I think, John, that you had a topical one for us today.
1: Well, I was interested to hear from a colleague earlier in the week about a member of a super in Australia complaining about a superannuation fund's lack of an animal welfare welfare policy. And uh, it did uh, make me think about whether or not that was something West Ham should also think about.
0: And all those other footballers that just weren't silly enough to film themselves doing bad things, who I'm sure may or may not exist. Anyway, that brings us us to the close of the programme. So thank you very much to John and to Sam for joining us. Thank you to our audience for listening to us. We will be back as ever in two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then.